This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from business to history, and everything in between. And this next story is a series that we've been hitting on for quite some time, our Rule of Law series. And by the way, as you listen to this story, you're going to be wondering, well, when does the law come in? Well, in so many of our lives, the law just comes in. And when it comes in, we're not too happy. We're wondering how the heck it happened in the first place. Our own Alex Cortez brings us this next story from a Venezuelan named Luis Rodriguez, who also spent some time in London, which explains the interesting mix of accents you're about to hear. Now let's hear Luis's story. The specific things that my mother was involved in was starting the first school for burnt children. Burnt children in poor countries are deemed as an added weight that people don't want to deal with. And so they were usually left on the streets. And so the first school actually needed to be almost a boarding school. The incredible thing is the first time that this school was put together, the community didn't want these burnt children because of the stigma that it brought. The community grew to a point that children needed school. And so the school opened up to both non-burnt plus burnt children. And so it transformed the interaction to where the community embraced the school and loved having the burnt children within their community to the point that they started caring for them. And then suddenly all of that got nationalized. Taken over by the government. And shut down. Isn't that insane? The volatility of oil causes havoc on planning, which causes issues with respect to management of policies. Especially if oil production is 25% of your country's economy, as Venezuela's is. That created a source of populism that got enacted into power with Chavez in 1998. The late president, Hugo Chavez. The perverse thought process that drives what's happened in Venezuela is that by making people have to rely on the government for the most basic of necessities, you've now created a way of very cheaply influencing power on people. I think 80% of all food sources now come from the Venezuelan government. Coupled by the fact that at that point in time, oil was at 100, so it's giving you plenty of money to enact policies that are not able to be withstood with any kind of reasonable oil price eventually. It all fueled this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy of the Messiah coming, us being given the power and it being enacted by the person because money is coming in that has nothing to do with him, but it's being attributed, you know, the benefit to this person. Things started getting unraveled so this is kind of 2002, 2003, there was a stop to all economic activity in Venezuela. And that continued to grow into these massive marches every day to enact our ability to say, hey, we're not happy with this. And that finalized with this kind of march towards the presidential palace. And I, I remember you know, you're talking about almost a million people marching. 
And what ended up happening was we were met by the National Guards and enacting force through bayonets, through snipers, starting kind of just taking people down. You know, I was quite young at the time. I was um, 20, 20, you know, 20, 21 at the time. Yeah, but my brother was 17. Were their parents okay with this? I'm not sure they were, but they didn't have a choice. Like we really, really felt like this is, by being here, we're inspiring change. And running with my brother to be at the forefront of this, because I really felt like being at the front was where we wanted to be in this fight. And I, I, um, and then I, I lost him through all the all the smoke. And I remember that I, this this kind of just because we were rushing against the the National Guard, and suddenly there was this massive amount of smoke, uh, which was tear gas, and I suddenly lost him. I couldn't see him, and I just, this, my, my heart just kind of just sank, and I was like, well, I, what have I done? And then the person right next to me got shot in the head. Um, and, um, 19 people would be killed that day. Everything kind of came to came to this somber conclusion of do I really need to be here? Um, I found my brother thankfully. But now it was just a case of let's just survive and get out of here. Um, there's no there's no um, no bravery in, in being shot for nothing. And this kind of just cold uh, realization that maybe, maybe by doing this, we aren't achieving anything but just the death of ourselves. And so this is a very um, disheartening and, and um, sad, sad moment. Did Luis have any feelings, though, that he might have been abandoning the cause? Um, no. I, you know, at that, at that point in time, I, I kind of just said, I'm a foot soldier right now, at this moment in time in my life, and I can be more than that at some point, hopefully. And so... I'd rather enable being more than be a foot soldier right now in something that I don't believe in anymore. And what a story we're hearing, and that's Luis Rodriguez's story. And again, we're getting some insight into what happened in Venezuela. Because my goodness, it was a train wreck coming for a couple of decades. And so many countries who experience these kinds of problems, well, it's rule of law in the end that causes them. When we come back, more of our Rule of Law series, more of Luis Rodriguez's story, here on Our American Stories.
continue with our American stories and Luis Rodriguez's story of being a part of the grassroots uprising against Venezuela's socialist dictatorship. That is, until he concluded that his purpose in life was something more than being a mere foot soldier. My thinking was, at the time, energy is this kind of potent enabler for good. You know, you, you still need the tractor that is plowing the field to plow the field, but it's the fuel that gets into it that enables that tractor to move. The fact that petrol is what makes planes be able to be commercially viable. And so I want to be in energy, and where the rubber met the road for me was in looking to really learn it from the ground up. I felt that the issue in Venezuela was it gets politicized without actually knowing what's going on. And so I wanted to be in the ground at a well site understanding what was going on. So I joined ExxonMobil. And I worked with Exxon for a little while until it got nationalized. This was in 2005. And so when the nationalization was happening or is about to happen, basically anybody who had signed the referendum against Chavez, who was the president back then, got told, you know, that you're not longer going to have a job here. And basically a list was made of people who had signed the referendum and it was used quite loosely to basically influence choices of employment or not. And so this drove me to want to seek other horizons. That got amplified by the fact that having lived through being in the forefront of activism at the time, and seeing people die next to me. All these things kind of molded into just wanting to get away from it, to be able to breathe. And um, it's gonna be funny, but uh, funny in that the place that I got offered a job was by a company called Schlumberger in Fort Smith, Arkansas, to become a frack engineer. And I was like, I don't know what this frack thing is. I don't know where Fort Smith, Arkansas is, <laughs> but you know what, I'll, I'll take it. I didn't have any big expectations um, because I didn't really know a lot about Arkansas. The people whom I spoke to about Arkansas didn't have a lot of nice things to say about it. And I really loved Arkansas actually. I found people to be so warming. The state is just beautiful. And the reality is, I was in a rig in the middle of nowhere, 20 hours a day. It could be more, actually. So, um, those first few years were a lot of hours. When I say 20 hours a day, I remember actually when Claudia arrived, my wife, I would get home sometimes at 10, 11, and leave at two to three. And that was very consistent. Saturdays, Sundays, Mondays, Tuesdays. Uh, she didn't like it at the time, but she was supportive. You know, she made a lot of sacrifices, leaving family, leaving her work, and coming to join me. But I think we did them thinking there's something that we want to create together, and so this will mean sacrifices, whichever way we take it, uh, as long as as we know that this isn't it, that we're working towards something more, I think that gave us both comfort that we'd eventually make it to where we want it to be, the way that we wanted it to be. And 
very quickly got introduced to what you know an engineer is supposed to be doing, this is what you're really going to be doing, and, and most of it was just cleaning trucks and fixing trucks, just frack trucks. And so I started my life in the United States cleaning trucks, in essence, in the middle of nowhere in Arkansas. Which he didn't exactly need an engineering degree for. You know, at the time, I just, I just felt joy at doing something and doing it for myself. And so I didn't feel like it was beneath me. I didn't feel, I, I just felt like, you know, this is something that I'm gonna do the best that I can, period. And it ended up to where it was just this interesting flow of things where, you know, shale started to grow. Thanks to the fracking done by those frack trucks, where their shooting of high pressure water down the wells opened up the dense shale rock and the oil and gas inside of it that previously couldn't be opened. And so I was the first engineer in Arkansas because at some point they needed engineering talent and then suddenly all these frack trucks started to break and I had an understanding of how they could be fixed better and that yielded growth into managing people. And so, you know, this, this kind of snowball effect of positivity around the growth of energy coincided with my growth within the industry, which was beautiful. It all came to a very abrupt end in kind of 2008, 2009, when I had to let go of a lot of people I was managing in Bryan, Texas. At the time now, we'd had Diego, my first son, and all these things were kind of pointing to, I'd be moving all over the place, you need to settle and do something that not only goes for you and your immediate family, but for people beyond that. But very quickly realized, I think I can do this by myself, and I can do it in a way that is true to the way that I want to start a company. And thus, Rise Energy began, and this is October of 2014, right before oil and gas prices crashed, actually. Not because I thought they were going to crash. <laughs> and uh, at the beginning it was pretty tough, just because you can imagine you're going out to raising money and the asset that you're investing in doesn't make any money uh, because the costs were too high for, for the benefits of what it was producing. Literally, no play was economic with the cost structure that you had pre-crash and the crash commodity prices. There might have been one-offs, there might have been like exceptions, but it was the exception rather than the rule. So that made it tough because you're now going to pitch something that in essence is worth less than what you're gonna pay. You had to have some conviction that things were gonna turn around. I talked to a lot of people uh, and, and you know some rejected me flat out, so uh, for X, Y, or Z. I mean, in some ways, you, you really do have to speak to a lot of people, and, and that, that both enables you to learn from those experiences and be better at the next experience and how you think about those interactions. I quit my job to do it, and so there was like, I was committed. I, I don't necessarily um, say that that's a good thing, but that's what I did. And, you know, I had a dwindling bank account and I had a set time that I needed to get it done. Uh, otherwise, I was going to have to go back and find something. And so, you know, whether that came through, I, I don't think I necessarily, you know, played the card willfully, but it probably just 
imbibed a lot of how I came across. Maybe at first energetically, hopefully towards the end not desperate. At the lowest point I was within only two months of what we were spending on a monthly basis, uh, which put a lot of unease on us and on me. Um, thankfully, ended up raising 11.4 million from three private individuals who really believed in me. And so that was the nascency, and it was just me, of Rise Energy in February of 2015. And then in January of 2016, a very large private equity, NCAP, came in and said, we love what you are doing and we'd like to increase that 20-fold. And we would not be here without them today. The team has grown from, you know, me in, in a coffee shop uh, to now 50 employees. The, the thing that I look forward most in my work is empowering people. And it was a big part of why I started the company. When you give people the right environment, it's like magic. And that is so true, and we all know it when you give people the right environment. It is magic. And my goodness, what a story coming from Venezuela and watching the government run an operation and an industry to America where you've got all of these companies competing for customers, competing to lower prices, competing to do things better. Uh, Luis Rodriguez took advantage of that. And not without problems and not without worry, as we heard, just a few months away from not being able to pay the bills to someone coming in and investing more money. And that's what private equity folks do. And that's why if you're ever running a business and you ever need some money, my goodness, you like capital. You're willing to pay a return on that or you're willing to give part ownership for that. And that's, that's the joy of capital markets. There's human capital and there's capital capital. And to make the world hum and create all these jobs and create the economy we know and all the taxes that come from them, we've got to think about capital. When we come back, more of Luis Rodriguez's story here on Our American Stories. continue here with our American stories in the final portion of Luis Rodriguez's remarkable life story and life journey. Luis is one of the three million Venezuelans who fled their socialist dictatorship, and he has since worked his way up from cleaning fracking trucks in Arkansas to now having his very own energy exploration company. Let's continue the story. The United States, unlike any other country in the world, pretty much any other country in the world, Mineral ownership is private, and that is very important. At some point during the occupation of the West, the government decided to say, hey, we're going to give one mile by one mile, or depending if you, I think if you were married or something to that effect, you got two miles by, by, by one mile. And you're going to own not just the surface, but you're going to own everything that is underneath all the way to the center of the earth. Everything. 
the United States being the United States, people started saying, well, you know what, I really like the surface, but there's this other person who seems to really want to pay for my minerals. Such as this guy, Luis Rodriguez. So I'm just going to sell it. And so things started to get segregated. And so now the surface owner and the mineral owner might be two completely different people in two completely different states that have no relationship with each other. And then furthermore, you know, people would say, you know what, I'm just going to sell you my copper rights underneath me, but I'm going to maintain my oil and gas rights. I'm just going to sell you my gas rights and, and so on and so forth. Or I'm just going to sell you from surface to 200 feet below the surface and everything else I'm going to keep. So now you're dividing plots of land without us even getting into the fact that as you inherited them and people had seven kids and, and these had six and these had four and three, you're now dividing it into hundreds of pieces. And so the permutations are incredible from the standpoint of subdividing these things. But then the other interesting thing is that the way that these contracts get negotiated is I'm going to give you some sort of a monitoring incentive up front. You get that money, it's yours to keep. It can be from $1 to tens of thousands of dollars per acre, per one acre. It depends on where you're at and the prospectivity of what's underneath you. But then the contract also says, hey, you know what? We need to do something as far as producing your minerals in a given amount of time. And if we don't do that, then the contract goes null and you keep the bonus that we gave you and now you can negotiate with anybody else. If we do drill and we start producing, then you get a royalty stream of sorts. In general, it's kind of 20, 25% of the revenue is now going to be yours of anything that's produced there. So now you not only did get a bonus, but you also are getting a royalty stream. And so the ownership, when you get outside of cities, can be tens, sometimes thousands of acres. So just multiply by 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 20,000, et cetera. Per acre, it's, it can mint millionaires pretty quickly. You know, the United States has just been an incredible journey of empowerment that I think it's very difficult to see through in any other place. The fact that a person whom I had the resources from the standpoint of uh, a family that supported me, I had the resources from the, the standpoint that a family that invested in my education, but beyond that, got to, to the United States with pretty much nothing beyond that, which is a lot still, and was able to grow that into starting a business that is doing really well. I think that's a magnificent journey that speaks volumes as to what you can do in the United States that other countries don't necessarily have the culture to allow to do. I was called up for, for jury duty and I found that fascinating. I love the, the fact that the people are given the power to be enablers of the rule of law and I, you know, when I, when I went in I went in with this kind of conception of people telling me, you need to get out of this. Um, you know, like, this is just going to be a waste of your time. And it was actually a case that was going to take several days that I ended up being chosen. And just the people who were chosen took it very seriously. I took it very seriously. And I just thought of, that just speaks so much to what you want 
for yourself if you were put in that position. And it gave me great belief in the system again. It's like, you know, I actually, there's a lot of things that get said and, and there's a lot of things that are wrong. But the fact that these people took it that seriously and I can see that it happens over and over and there are subsets that, that might not, but they don't get chosen, is wonderful. And that's not the case everywhere in the world. I think 90 something percent of, of the murders in, in Venezuela go without any trial which causes all sorts of perverse incentives because now the rule of law is in essence in anybody's hand, whoever has arms and whoever has power. And honestly, very tough case that I, that I got into, but just gave me a continued appreciation for how the rule of law works in the, in the US. The, the, the rule of law, even though it's, it can be very dry, is really the grease that makes the wheel turn. And so, to me, there's the fact that things are able to transact in a way that you don't even have to think when they transact is by the, the, the fact that the rule of law is upheld. And I want to say respected, but it's the respect there's, there's kind of a chicken and the egg of respect and implementation of follow through if it isn't. So there's that combination. I don't think that there's people in other countries that respect the rule of law less than they do here in the United States. I just believe that there has been a continuation of implementation of if you don't, these things will happen that allow for this kind of thought process of yes, why would we not respect it? Because these consequences would happen and you don't even think about the consequences, even though in the back of your mind, the fact that you think this needs to be respected is because at some point in time, somebody within your structure of influence thought about those consequences or saw them in action. And speaking of action, what does Luis think about all of the action going on in his native Venezuela? Will all of the government's failures, all of the protests, and most of the world calling for tyrant Nicolas Maduro to leave power finally lead to the end of this socialist dictatorship? I'm cautiously optimistic with things that are happening in Venezuela, but have been cautiously optimistic for a very long time now. And so I just, you know, I kind of temper my optimism with the fact that I've had it for 20 years and, and had to have decoupled it from the fact of where my life goes, where my career goes, is you know, in some ways disconnected from where Venezuela goes. But at the same time, everything that I do in my life right now and everything that I do in my career can in some way, shape or form eventually be of help um, when it's needed again. And we want to thank Luis for that remarkable story. And thanks to Alex and to Joey for all the good work they do on the Rule of Law series. And thanks for all the supporters who've made it happen. And we can't do it without you. And my goodness, what a story to tell everybody. He should be out around the country telling his story. And that's why we tell these stories. It's a fascinating thing to watch the media not cover catastrophes that happen around the world. And by the way, all those folks coming here to this country, what are they coming for? It's the rule of law. They don't know it, but that's why they're coming. And it's a remarkable thing our founders did with the Constitution. 
It's a remarkable thing. Our financial markets, the SEC, are, are guarantees to each other that we're going to pay each other when you swipe a credit card, that it works. All the things that we just take for granted. As he put it, and Luis put it beautifully, it's the grease that makes the wheel turn. And you don't see it. It's just there. When you're from someplace where there is no grease and the wheel doesn't turn, my goodness, imagine if Luis had stayed in Venezuela. The last 20 years would have been for naught. 20 years of wasted life, folks. Luis Rodriguez's story, a great rule of law series story, here on Our American Stories. 